Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation. Uh, we've started on our anxiety and depression uh, massive literature overview. We're going to be going through 5,000-plus sources and putting them all together into a comprehensive guide that uh, showcases all the possible treatments for anxiety and depression. Uh, the main premise is that if you suffer or know someone that has suffered and they go to a practitioner, you know, that person may know 2 to 3% of all possible treatments. What if we could assemble 20%? It would be a home run for people suffering. So to find out more, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, my guest is uh, Dr. Talbayev, PhD. He's an associate professor at Tulane, uh, part of the School of Science and Engineering. And we're going to talk about spectroscopy, femtosecond and terahertz spectroscopy. So, Dr. thank you for coming. Uh, yes, uh, Richard, happy to be here. Yeah, this area you work in is so fascinating. I love time lapse, and I'm sure everyone else does. But <laughs> tell me about your research. What are you trying to look at with the, the high-speed spectroscopy you're doing? Right. That's a good question. I guess the, the main main thing I wanted to discuss is what we do with light. And I, I guess you already got into one of the main points that uh, we use light that's very short in duration. And the fascinating thing about light is that once it touches something, you, you know, either passes through or is it reflected by a surface, it keeps the memory of that stuff, of that thing, or a material that it has interacted with. And And then if we measure that light in some way, we can learn things about what's happening inside different materials. And then the femtosecond part of it comes in is, is um, it helps us to um, understand the processes that are fast inside the materials. Oh, so what's the current, how fast can you uh, observe light? You know, how fast is the camera that you're using? Right. How fast is the pulse? Yeah. Uh, okay, it's a good question. So 
right? The, the speed of these observations, they actually don't have to do with the cameras. Cameras are just as slow as like, you know, our iPhones. Um, but the speed of the observations have to do with the, how short the pulses are. That's, that's our ruler, if you wish. And so the, the shortest available pulses, you know, in the world, not necessarily here in my, in my lab, but the shortest available pulses now are now measured in attoseconds. So um, femtosecond is, you know, a fraction of a second that's very short. An attosecond is, you know, dividing a femtosecond by another thousand times. So, um, so I guess technically, you know, the, the record, the world record would be sub-femtosecond. I don't remember exactly how many, but let's say tens or hundreds of attoseconds. That's the shortest that I know of. Uh, but again, in my lab at Tulane, we work with the shortest pulses that are maybe 20 to 30 femtoseconds long. So in that speed regime, what are you able to observe? Like, have you tried to look at chemistry happening, you know, as it happens? Are you able to do it with that resolution or are you just looking at light as it travels? No, our main focus is, you know, phenomena in materials. So chemistry would be an area of potential interest, but we work with um, uh, solid state materials. You know, what, what comes most to mind is semiconductor chips as a solid state material or magnetic materials that are used in uh, like data storage, that kind of things. And so the processes there have to do with what electrons are doing inside. In fact, if, if you, um, you know, thinking broadly, electrons determine the properties of everything we see around us, including the chemical processes. So my, my interest and, and goal is to see and observe what electrons are doing. For example, they could be making a material magnetic. And then we can observe the motion of tiny magnetic moments due to electrons inside materials. Or um, other common phenomena are electrons could be making something a good electricity conductor, or they can do um, they can do the opposite, make some material a good insulator, electrically speaking. And then there are more exotic phenomena such as superconductivity, as an example. But how fast do uh, you know? I know electrons are waves and particles, but um... How fast do they move? Is the speed at which you're able to observe them, quote unquote, uh, uh, fast enough? Or, you know, like what, what limitations do you run into, but what can you observe at the speeds you're using? Right, right. So, uh, well, one example that I gave is we can see how electrons' magnetic moments are moving. So that speed, let's say one, one revolution, for example, of a, a one precession cycle of an electronic magnetic moment, you know, under some circumstances, could be, um, you know, could be one picosecond long. So a picosecond is a thousand femtoseconds. You know, if we're using a femtosecond as our benchmark, then in a thousand femtoseconds, an electronic speed magnetic moment can complete one of its revolutions. And, you know, the, the light that we have allows us to, um, to observe that. How do, you, um, how do you probe the electrons? Are you using just a pulsed laser that pulses incredibly fast to do this? Or how do you do this? There are different ways. So like one, one of our tools are these laser pulses, just like you said. They are visible to the eye, so they're red in color, and they last these 20 or 30 femtoseconds. And then what, what we do is we shine them, uh, we actually shine a stream of these pulses on a surface of the material we, we are working with, and then we measure what changes in the stream of pulses with each time they get reflected. Because these processes where we're looking at, right, it's an evolution of some sort. And so by sending this stream of pulses, if you wish, we can, we can uh, look at like a stroboscopic movie 
each pulse is a time frame, and um, we we can measure we can measure slight changes of how much light, for example, is reflected from one pulse to the next, and that can tell us something. Or we can measure other properties of this light. One properties we can measure is polarization, and so we can measure slight changes in how polarized the pulses in this stream are from one pulse to the next. And that also changes something about what's happening inside. For example, often polarization is related to uh, the motion of the magnetic moments of electrons. Magnetic, um, like one of the basic properties of the magnetized matter is that it can rotate or change the polarization of light that's reflected off of a surface. So that's, that's one example. I know that the uncertainty principle bedevils all of physics. So where is that going to come into play um, if you try to go at a shorter time scale? Let's say you try to do an attosecond pulse laser. Will there be uncertainties that cause it just not to work? Will the energies be too high or too low? Like What, what do you work um, with in terms of trade-offs? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Right. So thinking in terms of just, you know, if it's, if we're, if we're looking at just the pulses themselves, then I don't think we are, we're running into that kind of limits. But when we think of them, these very short pulses interacting with electrons, then the uncertainty would be in how well, I guess, we can measure the behavior of the electrons because the uncertainty, there are different forms of the uncertainty principle. And in this case, the uncertainty principle would connect the pulse duration to the to the spread of the energy of either the light or the electrons that can be measured. So the shorter they are, the more uncertainty there is, I guess, in the um, energy of either of the electrons that, that we're interacting with or the, the change in the energy of, during this interaction. Okay, and you mentioned um, when light interacts with matter, it, it kind of affects the light in a permanent way. So what's an example of that? Like what happens when light passes through certain materials? What changes about it? Oh, you know, the most, the most obvious example, uh, some colors can get absorbed. Like if you think about, you know, colorful windows, for example, they're col- colorful, or if you're looking through a, through a colorful window, the, the daylight that streams into is, is white, right? It has all the colors. And then as it passes through, we see all these colors because some of the wavelengths got lost or got absorbed or perhaps scattered out of the beam or the stream of light that reaches our eyes. So that's, that's, the most, that's the most basic interaction. Some of the wavelength can, can be absorbed or scattered. And in fact, this is exactly what, what we use when we study materials. Like I said, all of the, pretty much all of the behavior of the materials around us is due to how electrons behave inside. And electrons are also the main component, I guess, of stuff that interacts with light. So it can, kind of works out very well that way. So what have you been able to tell about the structure or properties of various compounds um, by doing this spectroscopy? Okay. Well, the main, 
one of the main topics has been um, this example that I already mentioned. We look into magnetic properties, and when we look at magnetic properties, the magnetic properties are, are there because electrons have, in addition to electric charge, they have uh, magnetic moments associated with them. And so when electron, when electrons manage to combine, you know, to, um, uh, they manage to combine in such a way that they, that their magnetic moments add up together, that's when the materials can um, become magnetic. And these magnetic moments can also interact with light of appropriate frequencies. That's where the, the terahertz part comes in, uh, in the name of my lab that you mentioned. Uh, so the light of these terahertz wavelengths turns out to be a very convenient and useful light to study the motions of these magnetic moments. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. By, by studying them, what we have learned a lot is about how the magnetic interactions happen in different materials. So that, that has been a, one of the main topics. Another, I think, a cool topic that we, we've looked at in recent years was, it turns out there are materials that can pass light differently uh, in the forward and backward directions. It's, um, the, the names I use for this is either one-way window or one-way mirror. And it's not quite like the one-way window that, that you see in the, in the movies, right, where somebody is behind a glass and they're looking into a brightly lit room and they see what's happening inside, but the person on the other side of the glass don't see. So that's, that's not quite it. That happens, you know, in the movie it happens just because one side is dark. You obviously cannot see into the dark side. If the both sides of that window were lit equally brightly, then, you know, you and your friends would be equally able to see each other. But then it turns out that there are windows that pass light, pass more light in one direction and less light in the opposite direction, even if the both sides of it are equally, equally bright. So that's, that's one example of what we have studied recently with light. And then another a counterpart to that is, turns out. You said you deal with solid state materials. Is this mm-hmm. spectroscopy of liquids or gases not workable with these schemes? Or what's the issue? Is it, is it just you can't do everything, or is it that <laughs> liquids or gases are right, right, completely um, different beasts? Nothing. There are no issues. You know, there are probably hundreds of scientists who do all, the, uh, all those things. They study liquids and then they study gases. So yeah, I just wanted to know, like, have you have you at least considered looking at the properties of liquids and gases or plasmas? And if so, would the would the speeds at which you do spectroscopy be workable for those substances, or do they need to be faster? Uh, what's the you know what's the overall that that's right i think the i think i repeat myself there are probably uh, tens of hundreds of scientists using femtosecond spectroscopy to study uh liquids uh, solutions or gases in fact a lot of them are chemists so chemistry in my mind associated with a squishy kind of things in fact i have a chemistry colleague who uses similar tools i guess just my background as, as a physicist sort of rooted me more in, in a, you know, in a solid material, on the solid materials, sort of, um, materials side. That, that's all. It'd be funny if you, like, someone sponsored an annual race of, like, you know, ultra high-speed spectroscopy scientists, and they had to run, like, this 5K race, and they were so slow, but the spectroscopy they do is so fast. I know it's silly. It's just something I thought of. So, okay. So, there's, you said there's hundreds of scientists working on this. Do you collaborate with them? Like, is anything they're doing useful to you or is it kind of like everyone's sticking to their own knitting and you know it's only maybe through papers that you you learn about you know high-speed spectroscopy and what else they can do right right so i have collaborated 
and I am collaborating with some of them. Usually, you know, there's, there needs to be something common and, and useful, you know, for both, for both collaborators that, that motivates. You know, we all go to meetings or used to go to meetings. Uh, we, you know, we talk to each other. We read each other's papers. I do, like I said, I do have collaborators, uh, for example, Louisiana State in Baton Rouge, Baylor University in Texas, Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology in Japan. So usually the, the motivation is that you can't have every tool in your to- toolbox. And so sometimes you just need to borrow a tool. And so you go to someone else's lab and do it, or you let other people's people come to your lab and use your tools. That's the most common motivation, but there are others or, you know, exchanging and sharing ideas is another great motivation. What's, what's the barrier to creating a one attosecond laser? The barrier to creating one attosecond laser. Yeah. Like you said the ones that you're using are what hundreds of attoseconds. Um, as in, you said, I guess the best in the world is what uh, the fastest, what, uh, 20 to 50 attoseconds. I mean, what, what would be the barrier right, right, to right. producing That's like the, a one or sub one second, sub mm-hmm. one attosecond laser? So I, I think the, um, these shorter pulses, they don't come straight out of a laser. I think we usually, or the others usually start with a laser that's fairly short, but not that short. So let's say a few femtoseconds, short, really strong pulses. And then they use usually a gas where they focus these long pulses. And as these long pulses get focused into a gas, they interact with, with the molecules or with the atoms. And these interactions are so strong that outcomes out of this gas, out of this interaction come much shorter attosecond pulses. So it's, you know, we, we have to, we have to do extra work. Um, I don't think there are actual lasers that provide these attosecond pulses. We start with good old femtosecond pulses. And then we use these strong nonlinear interactions to, um, to convert these um, long pulses into much shorter pulses. And so in principle, you know, if one looks at these interactions, actually, I don't want, I, I don't do that myself. So I don't want to mislead, mislead here. But in principle, if you have, you know, a strong enough input, then there may or may not be, you know, Im- imminent or immediate barriers to getting to shorter and shorter pulses. But again, I don't do that myself, so I'm not I'm not fully aware what's what's preventing preventing us to make them shorter. Uh, but I'm sure there are you know there are practical difficulties. Yeah, well, I'm sure they are. Yeah. Well, very good, uh, Dion. What's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Where can they go? I do have a website. Uh, so if if one wants to go, where to go to um, uh, Tulane Physics Department, look up my name. There will be a link to my website. All right. Very good. Well, Dion, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.